there's one called Duck Soup, which is only the second film in which Laurel and Hardy appear together. They're a team in that film. Uh, you would think they'd been a team for years, the way that they react to each other, the way they move with each other, the way they anticipate each other's reactions. They have this seamless, perfect rapport. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Mr. Laurel, meet Mr. Hardy. That's the entire subject of this episode as we mark the first release from the Laurel and Hardy Restoration Project, with perhaps the greatest expert on their lives and careers, Randy Scratvet. But first, we certainly hope you'll subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice, and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. I could argue they're the most beloved and recognizable comedians of all time. The only ones who still have devoted fan clubs, the Sons of the Desert tents, all around the world. But they haven't always had love from whoever owned their films at the moment. So it was good news that a comprehensive restoration project was undertaken by the UCLA Film and Television Archive, Jeff Joseph's Sabucat, and the Film Foundation. We've spoken about parts of this project with Joseph and John Marsalis along the way, and now we're getting the first home video result of this project with Laurel and Hardy, The Definitive Restorations, from Kit Parker Films and The Sprocket Vault. To find out more, we turn to perhaps the world's top expert on the boys, Randy Scretvet. His book, Laurel and Hardy, The Magic Behind the Movies, revised in 2016, is the definitive history-slash-archive of material on their 30-year careers together. And he was extensively involved with this restoration project, including doing most of the commentary tracks on the set. So here's a deep dive into the world of Stan and Ollie with Randy Scretvet. Well, let's, let's start... By talking about the restorations, I mean, we finally got a pretty good home video set in America of Laurel and Hardy a few years ago, and here comes an even better one. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, I mean, everything is always based upon the condition of the available 35 millimeter materials, and unfortunately, um, Hal Roach, unlike another independent producer, Walt Disney, who was very careful about (laughs) maintaining his precious backlog of film, Hal Roach was the kind of guy who said, I don't care what I did yesterday, what am I doing today and tomorrow? And sadly, that attitude kind of extended to the preservation of the film library. Um, you know, in fact, I have a, a document in my book, uh, Laurel and Hardy, The Magic Behind the Movies, where 
um, somebody says, you know, the 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 total uh, lifespan of a film in terms of it being able to generate revenue is estimated at 80 weeks. Huh. <laughs> and I'm thinking, 80 weeks. Well, okay, that's about a little over a year and a half. Uh, you know, Laurel and Hardy films now are coming up on uh, 92 years, 93 years, and here we are still watching them, you know. So they, I think they're a little off in their estimates. <laughs> but anyway, you know, with this, especially uh, uh, in, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, you would think that the people who were maintaining the Roach Library, mainly a guy named Herb Gelbspan, you would think they would have thought, gee, you know, these films seem to have a, a long uh, life and people still want them. Maybe we should invest some money into preserving the library and making some new negatives and da 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 da, da. But that never happened. They always seem to be surprised that anybody would be interested in these old pictures. And every time a new client came along and said, we want to make new prints of Laurel and Hardy films, the the Roach people were were thinking, wow, well this has to be the last time anybody will want these old <laughs> things. So here you go, you know, here's the same old exhausted materials. Uh, these things were loved to death. I mean, that's uh, David Shepard, who was a famous film archivist, had his you know inverse law of uh, film uh, preservation versus popularity, which is the more popular a film is, the likelier it is to be in terrible condition because just been printed and reprinted to death. You know, the, the extreme example would be the Chaplin uh, Keystones and SNAs and Mutuals. You know, they, uh, they <laughs> it's, it's a wonder that any of those uh, survive in, in any condition where we can see who is who and understand what's what in the film uh, because they've been printed and duped and duped and duped so many times. Well, largely the same situation prevailed with Laurel and Hardy. They have existed in very poor condition for many years, and uh, there are still several titles, especially Silence, where we're kind of scratching our heads and thinking, well, we hope there's still good material on them out there somewhere. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the Universal Vivendi set came out in 2011, and uh, I didn't have much to do with that. Basically, I helped on a commentary or, or two commentaries for Way Out West. Uh, Richard Bann was the guy who oversaw that project. And they used the best materials they could find at that point, nine years ago. Um, but, glory be, you know, there are repositories all over the world that have copies of these things or source materials, and um, the, there's always an ongoing search. And uh, Scott McQueen at UCLA, who's the head of the film preservation department for the uh, the film and television archive, um, he's been putting finders out for, for better material and has found some. And so that's why uh, even if you look at the 2011 set that came out from Vivendi of a, a title like uh, Their First Mistake or Me and My Pal or One Good Turn, you look at them and you go, well, that's pretty much what they've looked like all these years. Then you see the new restoration and you go, wow, you know, look at how much was dormant in that image all these years. And listen to how much better the sound is. Um, it's, it's a combination of finding better original 35-millimeter source material, plus the, the, the photochemical wizardry of Scott McQueen and the team at UCLA, and then uh, Thad Komorowski at a company called Cineast uh, in New York, and uh, he does the digital restoration. And then there's a whole raft of people who work on the soundtracks. And happily, you know, none of these things look like they've been digitally 
enhanced or sound like they've been digitally enhanced because you can overdo that as I'm sure you've seen. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing a video of uh, of uh, My Fair Lady, a, a, a laser disc of My Fair Lady, where you know the edges had a sharp edge to them everywhere because somebody had tweaked something too much. Or people wind up with kind of the smooth texture of a uh, 1957 Plymouth as opposed to a human being. Right, right. Oh, and I deal a lot with the world of old records. And uh, back well, twenty odd years ago, there were processes called cedar and no noise, which were supposed to take uh, all the surface noise off of seventy eights. Well, a lot of times they overdid it, and the records started sounding like they were underwater. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> they got this 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 digital garbling on them. Uh, so happily, none of those uh, problems exist on these transfers. They're they look and sound like film, but they sound and look like really gorgeous condition clean film that was shot yesterday um, um for example uh, uh busy bodies has always had this annoying scratch down at the bottom of the right uh, part of the frame every print i've ever seen well that's not there anymore huh. uh so spots and speckles and scratches have been removed uh, very carefully very judiciously um the sound is so much better you know you don't have all the the dupe soundtrack noise that you had originally so they i mean they're breathtaking for one case, um, Hogwild, they were able to find uh, a, a, a picture source, a picture element that was for prints that had the, the sound on discs. So it's a full silent era um, picture area, which is, which is larger than sound area because the sound track uh, occupied the left part of the frame. So you're seeing a lot more image in this uh, transfer of Hogwild than you've ever seen before, not only on the side, but also on the top and bottom. You, you really realize how cropped uh, all the previous uh, prints and transfers have been. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I've always kind of felt, I mean, on the one hand, you know, how beautiful does Laurel and Hardy need to be? But on the other hand, there's kind of a thing about Roach films where, you know, they seemed like in 1936 they were making movies that were up to the technical standards of 1931. And it kind of just seems like maybe that was just the crud accreted over decades of printing and re reprinting without a lot of care taken. Well, I think, I think Roach certainly wanted his films to look <clears throat> every bit as good as they could because Number one, he had to answer to MGM. Uh, you know, his, he was the only independent producer that uh, MGM distributed, and MGM wanted to keep everything looking like it came from the the Tiffany Studio. You know, MGM wanted to be the biggest and the best, and uh, I think that may be one reason why, for example, on Our Relations, which is from 1936, they use uh, Rudolf Mattei as the cameraman. And uh, he was quite a bit more sophisticated than Art Lloyd, or at least was permitted to be more sophisticated than Art Lloyd was, shall we say. Uh, in fact, I was a good friend of Art Lloyd's widow. He, Art was their, their perennial cameraman in the 30s. And she told me, she said, well, you know, Art would have loved to have gotten more texture and more lighting into the films. But Stan would always say, wipe me out, Artie, wipe me out. He said, I want to be flat-faced, you know, put as much light into me as you can. And that was also good for comedy. They wanted bright, flat, even lighting everywhere. One reason being that because Laurel and Hardy did a fair amount of ad-libbing, they wanted that whole set lit so that if they moved around somewhere that was kind of unexpected, they knew they'd be lit properly. Um, that was something that changed when Laurel and Hardy went to Fox 
and uh, you know they were lighting everything a little bit more dramatically and a little bit more precisely. Um, Dick Lane, who was in some of the a couple of the Fox features, told me there would be times when Standard Bay would 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 move or or start to ad lib a little, and the director would cut, and he'd say, "Hey, you you know you're off your mark. You know you're out of the light." Because they weren't lighting everything in that in that bright, even overall light the way that they had at Roaches. But again, if you look at uh, our relations, that's a very polished-looking movie. It looks a, a lot better than the previous Laurel and Hardy feature, which is The Bohemian Girl. That one does look pretty crude, technically, for 1936. Uh, but uh, our relations looks and sounds very, very nice indeed. It's very handsome. Um, and and way out west too looks looks quite good. So I I, I don't think it's a, a case of uh, you know Roach just not caring about the uh, the technical quality of his films. He would have been called on the carpet about it by uh, Arthur Lowe at MGM, I'm sure. Um, so it's it, some of it may well just be due to print quality. Once again, these films the visual quality deteriorates pretty rapidly once you get into dupes of dupes of dupes. And so that's what we're trying to um, uh, exhume. We're trying to exhume the, the the quality of the image. And again, if you see something like Come Clean, I mean, that's breathtaking now when you see it. It's it's just amazing how that image just sparkles now. I mean, in a good way. <laughs> not not because of negative dust or right, right. or other problems. Uh, you know, you and especially on the Blu-ray, you suddenly become aware of all the detail in the set design in in the costuming um there's a lot of very uh shiny wallpaper for example in come clean and you really get to see all the detail of it it's it's kind of like when you get to look at a, an original print of a good laurel and hardy eight by ten which were shot with eight by ten negatives you know then you can really see all the detail there that you don't normally see in a print of a laurel and hardy movie but in these transfers you do you know all of that dormant uh, detail finally comes back, and I'm sure audiences saw it in beautiful nitrate prints back in the early 30s. Well, we can't give you a nitrate print, but we can give you the next best thing with a beautiful, uh, clean restoration. So, uh, where were all the films? Um, I mean, I know they were owned by what was it, Hallmark? That it owned the from Robert Halmy and. They're all over the world. Uh, but yeah, if you want a really detailed uh, uh, description of all of that, I don't know that nearly as well as Richard W. Band does. And Richard wrote a big essay all about the <laughs> twisted fate of the Hal Roach Film Library, which is in the uh, it's an appendix in my book, Laurel and Hardy: The Magic Behind the Movies, in the most recent editions, the 2016 hardcover and the 2019 uh, paperback, and it's quite lengthy. And uh, uh, it really makes you scratch your head as to why these <laughs> precious films were treated so uh, cavalierly. Uh, but uh, anyway, yes, they, the Hal Roach Studios, of course, they declared bankruptcy in 1959, and the physical studio was demolished in 1963. But there was still a Hal Roach Studios entity that owned the films and that licensed them to Blackhawk, for example, and then sadly licensed the silence to Richard Feiner and company. Uh, the, <laughs> the negatives for a lot of the silence at one point <laughs> were, were stored in the garage in Garden Grove, California of uh, a, quote, film preservationist, unquote, who will go nameless, but many people will know his name. And because they were not stored properly, uh, they turned into bricks. And uh, that's very sad that that original 35 nitrate, which had lasted until the 
mid eighties properly, uh, turned into bricks within a couple of years. And, uh, a friend of mine named Rob Stone, who now works for the library of Congress, but then worked for UCLA. He's a longtime Laurel and Hardy buff. And he said, I had the sad duty of having to dispose of the original negative from soup to nuts and some other Laurel and Hardy silence because they just were utterly unusable now, thanks to improper storage. So, you know, even people who, who, were purportedly film preservationists and making video copies of these things were not storing the original materials properly. Uh, for example, there is a um, there's this really strange uh, third reel for Laughing Gravy, um, which was filmed and then ultimately and happily uh, not used in the final cut of the film, which is a two reeler. But had this been used, it would have been a three reeler. And it's a scene where um, Stan gets this note where he sees that he's he will receive an inheritance on the condition that he leave Ollie and he doesn't want Ollie to see this letter and Ollie gets angry that Stan won't let him see the, the letter and they have this big argument and da, da, da. it's just a two reels of, of uh, frantic visual comedy slam shut for a whole reel of uh, downbeat dialogue. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's why they didn't use it. Thank goodness. They did use it in the foreign language versions. Unfortunately, it's still in those. Uh, but anyway, this footage surfaced. And everybody thought, oh, you know, a new reel of Laurel and Hardy. Let's put it into <laughs> Laughing Gravy. Never, never mind the fact that the filmmakers decided that they didn't want it in the film. You know, it, it, it's, it's this mindset that anything longer must be the director's cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they, they find this reel. They put it into the Laurel and Hardy show on video in the 1980s. Uh, they put it out on a video release somewhere. But they never did anything to preserve the actual nitrate until many years later. You know, you you would think that would be the first uh, order of business was, here's this precious film on a very unstable uh, uh, source. You know, let's get that taken care of before we start monetizing it. But that's never been the mindset of the people who run the library. Anyway, to your question of where is all this stuff? Uh, a lot of it was here in Southern California, and yes, indeed, uh, the chain of ownership went from Howard Studios to uh, in the for the Northern Hemisphere. Yes, Robert Halmy and International RHI, and then uh, that got swallowed up by uh, what the new Howard Studios in 1986, and then that got swallowed up by. Uh, Halmy, I think, again. And then Hallmark uh, Cards bought the company because Halmy was producing the Hallmark Hall of Fame specials. And Hallmark said, well, rather than out pay this outside production company, why don't we just buy the production company? Which they did, and they weren't particularly interested in acquiring the Hal Roach Library. That was just part of the deal. And the sad thing was that Hallmark not only had no interest in doing anything themselves with the Hal Roach films, but they also blocked many other uh, uh, offers from other people to do things. Hugh Hefner at one point made a very uh, handsome offer to, to buy the Roach Library. And they said, no, no, no deal. They wanted to hang on to those films as collateral when they needed to obtain financing for new Hallmark Hall of Fame TV specials. And so, you know, those films were basically held hostage for all the time that Hallmark Cards owned them. They, they weren't doing anything with them, and they didn't let anybody else do anything with them. There was a very brief time when they had a Hallmark channel, and Leonard Malton had a, 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 a limited-run series of a few of them, but it was very few. And then there, was, uh, there were two DVDs that came out, really bad DVDs, from Hallmark. And the only reason those came out was because there was a buyer from Walmart – and he said, I can sell 
50,000 of these if you will just let me, you know, give me product. And finally, Hallmark relented, and they came out with this DVD that had Sons of the Desert taken from a colorized videotape for the TV package, which had added music by Ronnie Hazelhurst, who's a British conductor, and it had added uh, fade-ins and fade-outs for commercial breaks. And all they did was they, they desaturated the nasty, smeary, added color, and that's what they sent out. You know, so it's this really bad, smeary black and white with added music and added fade-ins and fade-outs that shouldn't be there. And uh, also on it as an added bonus was, I think, Chickens Come Home, but without any main titles. So it was like this, the, you know, the, the quickest, dirtiest, sloppiest DVD they could possibly do. You know, if they wanted to put a, a big, a big uh, sticker on the package saying, Hallmark doesn't care to send the very best, <laughs> that, that would have been appropriate. So that, that was what Hallmark did. And then finally, Hallmark said, we're sick and tired of paying the storage bills on this film. And they were about to actually junk it. You know all the Roach 35 material, and finally somebody at the at the company uh, had the good sense to call Richard Ban and said, you know, we're we're sick and tired of paying the storage bills on this. What should we do? And Richard Ban finally said, you should do what I've been telling you guys to do all the time, and that is have it stored at UCLA. Now, happily, Hallmark not just deposited the film with UCLA, which would have meant they still owned it, and UCLA got all the headaches and bills of storing it. No, they actually donated it to UCLA. So UCLA now has ownership of those materials. And I believe it does include some silent era material. I I really don't even know at this point who owns the silence. It used to be Richard Feiner who rather mercifully has gone on to his great uh, reward, whatever that may be. Uh, and uh, his son is Phil Finer, who runs Pacific Title, and he has other fish to fry. So I don't know that he's particularly interested in the Laurel and Hardy Library. I do know that he is not nearly as litigious a character as Richard Finer, because <laughs> who could be? Uh, Richard Richard Finer, if anybody used uh, Laurel and Hardy, he would sue them. And people kept saying him, "Don't don't sue them. Work with them. They're helping promote your product." You know. Yeah. So anyway, the, the, the library has gone through many, many hands. It's now mostly at UCLA, and of course the, the problem with UCLA and every film archive is obtaining uh, physical film, number one, which seems to be drying up, and also uh, financing for uh, getting these things uh, uh, restored. So it's a long process. You know, People are going, when are we going to get all the other ones? Well, you know, it's taken years to get the titles that we have on these forthcoming uh, sets, which are, what, 19 of the films? There's 17 shorts and two features, uh, plus tree in a test tube looking absolutely gorgeous. Uh, you know, that's the one real surviving color film of Laurel and Hardy, and it looks and sounds terrific for the first time ever, unlike all of those uh, public domain playhouse uh, DVDs that have been out there for years and years. Um, so, you know, it's going to take many more years before we get more Laurel and Hardy looking like this. So uh, this is this is something to treasure and savor when you get these new releases. Was your father and mother's name Laurel? Sure, Why? Did you ever have any relatives? Where were you born? I don't know. Fancy not knowing where you were born. Well, I was too young to remember.
you know, I certainly agree that there are great comedians, and then there's just Laurel and Hardy who are who are just endearing. I think beyond any others, even Keaton or right. Chaplin. Maybe going back to when they first got together, and the sort of odd combination of someone who had English music hall training and someone who definitely did not yet still managed to fit in with that uh, yeah. as a comedian. Let's talk about how they how they came to be. Well. Um, it, d- despite what Jerry Lewis uh, says in a documentary out there, <laughs> uh, Oliver Hardy was not a prop man who happened to be chosen almost at random by Stan Laurel. No, uh, Oliver Hardy had made 117 movies before Stan Laurel made his first one. So uh, that the, the difference in their training is that uh, Oliver Hardy was almost ex- exclusively a film actor. And Stan Laurel, of course, had been in Music Hall and in Vaudeville here in America. Uh, Stan Laurel was born uh, Arthur Stanley Jefferson, June 16, 1890, in Ulverston in Lancashire, then Lancashire, England. Now it's part of Cumbria, and it's in northern England, not too far from where the Beatles came from, actually. And uh, his father, Arthur Jefferson, was a theater manager and producer and playwright and actor. And his mother's professional name was Madge Metcalf, and she who was an actress, so Stan was born into the theater. And even as a young child, as you might expect, he was smitten with uh, you know things that had to do with uh, acting and writing and directing. And he made his debut in one of his dad's plays called Lights of London. He played a newsboy when he was seven years old. And then at that point in the music halls, there were a lot of uh, teenagers, teenage boys who were comedians. Uh, Lupino Lane was one of them. And in fact, somebody's working on a uh, Lupino Lane silent comedies project. I'm really excited about that uh, because if you've ever seen any of the silent Lupino Lane two-reelers, they're all wonderful. He's a very inventive comedian in movies. But way back when in the uh, 1890s and the early aughts and early teens, he was a boy comedian. He was known as Nipper Lane, and he was one of Stan Laurel's idols. And so Stan decided when he was 16 years old, he was going to be a boy comedian. And uh, he he had to make his, his debut at a theater other than one that his father owned. <laughs> uh, unbeknownst to him, though, by, by sheer coincidence, his father happened to be visiting the guy who managed this theater right at the time when Stan was about to go on. <laughs> and Dad saw that Stan had borrowed his very best frock coat as part of his comedy getup. And when Stan saw his dad after finishing his act on stage, he he nervously ran off the stage and he it caught on something and it ripped the coat in two. And uh, anyway, it was uh, uh, a, a bit of a disaster for Stan, but he got a good hand. And uh, later on, his his father said, "Well, you know, all right." He said, "Son, congratulations. You want a whiskey and a soda? <laughs> you know, it's like you're a man now. You know, you've done your your first uh, turn on the stage as a comic all by yourself." And he got Stan a, uh, a part in a uh, production of Sleeping Beauty, where Stan played a gollywog, which is a big doll. And uh, after that, he was in uh, a company called Levy and Cardwell, which is a juvenile pantomime company. English pantomimes are like parodies of uh, fairy tales. And they're like Carol Burnett show sketches, you know, and they always have men playing the female parts. So, uh, you know, it's very wacky comedy. So that was good training ground for Stan. From there, he graduated eventually into the Fred Carnot's London Comedians. And uh, that was around 1909. And uh, the star comedian of that particular troupe was Charlie Chaplin, who at that point was renowned for playing a drunk in a show called uh, Mummingbirds. 
and basically it's a show within a show. It's, it's people watching these terrible acts on stage, and you see the audience reaction, and Chaplin as this drunk is very abusive and is throwing things at the people on the stage, and the people on the stage are throwing things back at him, so it's a, a rowdy knockabout kind of sketch, but it was very popular. And the Carnot Troupe came to uh, America in 1910 and toured here, and then they came back again in 1912. That tour lasted into uh, late 1913, at which point Chaplin left to make films with Max Sennett. And uh, without their star comedian, the Carnot Troupe kind of foundered and broke up, but Stan decided to stay here in the States. And from basically from 1913 through 1922 or thereabouts, he was in vaudeville with various partners, one of whom was uh, a lady who adopted the name May Laurel. She gave the, uh, Stan his name Laurel. He had been Stan Jefferson, and he decided that that had 13 letters, which was unlucky. You know, <laughs> uh, show business people are very superstitious. And so she was looking at a book that was left behind in their dressing room, and she saw this Roman general, uh, Scipio. Africanus Major, and he had a wreath of laurel around his head, and she said, hmm, laurel, Stan Laurel, how do you like that? And he said, yeah, I like that, and it didn't have 13 letters in it, so that's how it became Stan Laurel. So Stan and May Laurel were in vaudeville from 1917 through 1922. Starting in 1917, Stan began making pictures for whoever would have him. Um, he made five one-reelers for Hal Roach in 1918. In fact, I was able to actually see the telegram, the real telegram, <laughs> That began Stan's association with Hal Roach. Uh, there was a director there named Alf Goulding who was doing sh shorts with Harold Lloyd. And he had seen Stan at a theater in Los Angeles and thought he had possibilities for pictures. They had made films with this uh, Italian clown named Toto. And uh, uh, Toto, unfortunately, developed this affliction where every time he heard the camera grinding away, it made him nervous and his eyes would spin around. <laughs> <laughs> well, they couldn't make films very well with him doing that all the time, so he had to bow out of the series. They had five more pictures left on the schedule to make, and they needed a new comic. So Alf Goulding sent a wire to Stan Laurel, who by that point had moved on on the vaudeville theater chain. He'd moved up to Santa Barbara at the Portola Theater. And I've actually seen the real telegram that says, you know, would you come to Roland Studios to try out for pictures, you know, a potential five-picture deal? And so Stan said yes and uh, got out of the vaudeville engagement and went to Roach's and made five one-reelers. And uh, after that, he made some films with uh, Bronco Billy Anderson. In fact, the very first time that he worked with Oliver Hardy was a, a, a pilot film financed by Bronco Billy Anderson, former Western star in movies and now producer. And that was called The Lucky Dog. And uh, that's where Stan and Babe Hardy first met. They met at the intersection of Keith and Barbie Streets in Los <laughs> Angeles, which is still there. Babe was born on January 18, 1892, in Harlem, Georgia. He actually never lived there. There's a museum in Harlem, Georgia. It really was never his hometown. He was born there because his mother's family lived there. Yeah. And the, the tradition in those days was when you were going to have a baby, you didn't go to the hospital. You went to your, your parents' house and delivered there. Well, that's what Mrs. Uh, Hardy did, you see. So he actually grew up in a town called Milledgeville, or Madison first, Madison, Georgia, and then Milledgeville, little towns in Georgia where his mother managed a big hotel. And um, 
there happened to be a movie theater right across the street from where the hotel was, and there was also the school in Milledgeville, which was called Georgia Military College. It's still there. It's still functioning. It's really not a military college per se. It's just the school for kids from preschool through the second year of junior college. And in those days, the segregated South, it was the white kids' school. There was another kid for the black kids uh, elsewhere in Milledgeville. So when they have, when you read stories about Babe being sent away to military school, he wasn't sent away. He was sent away about a block away from where he lived. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the trauma! <laughs> that building is still there, and there's markers all over Milledgeville saying, "Here's where Oliver Hardy did this, and here's where he did that." So anyway, Babe uh, was working at this movie theater right across the street from where he lived, and uh, he was kind of the man of all work, and he was watching these these comedies, and he thought, I can be every bit as bad as those guys can. Jacksonville, Florida was a burgeoning movie capital at that point because it had a lot of sunshine too. It was a lot closer than Hollywood, California. So he went to Jacksonville and began working in films in 1914. His first movie was called Outwitting Dad. Being a heavy, uh, uh, he was six foot two and he weighed somewhere around 300 pounds. And uh, that was good for comedy. You know, Fatty Arbuckle was very popular. And uh, a producer by the name of Joe Rock had a series later on called The Three Fat Men. John Bunny had been a popular comic, and he was very rotund. So uh, Babe's build made him a natural for comedies. And sometimes he would play sort of an innocent rube character. Sometimes he would play sort of a haughty society lady in drag, <laughs> and most of the time he would play a, what they called a heavy, meaning you'd, like Eric Campbell in the Chaplin Mutual films, he'd have these heavy eyebrows and mustaches and beards and the top hat, and he'd be the villain, the snarling villain. So he did a lot of that in, in Florida for companies called Lubin and then Vim. And when those companies went under, uh, a comic named Billy West, who was a Charlie Chaplin imitator, took over the company, and he moved them first to Bayonne, New Jersey, and made some films there, and then he moved the company out to Hollywood, and that's how Babe got out here. And uh, after that, he worked for a comedian named Larry Seaman, who uh, kind of a, a, a white-faced clownish type of character. He made a lot of uh, shorts with Larry Seaman in the early 20s and began working for Roach in 1925. And by that time, uh, not too long after that, Stan Laurel came back for his third tour of duty with Hal Roach. He'd made another series for Roach in 1923 and 24, and then Stan made a series with Joe Rock, a series of 12 two-reelers, and then came back for his third go-round with Hal Roach. And this is the one, th you know, three was the charm, because uh, Stan uh, got to Roach's again in 1926, by which time Babe was a contract player, and uh, Stan was hired this last time just as a director and writer. He was still obligated to not be on the screen because Joe Rock had not yet released all of the films that he'd made with Stan. So he said, I don't want to be compete. I don't want you competing with my films. You know, I don't want you making new films as a, as a comic with Roach when I still have films left to release. So Stan said, well, OK, I, I like writing and directing better anyway. And so that's what he was hired for at Roach's that last time, not as a performer. But once all those Joe Rock films had been released, Roach kept prevailing on him and saying, you know, you're pretty funny. Why don't you get back in front of the camera? And then there was a time when Babe was working on a film that Stan was directing, and Babe actually did burn his arm uh, trying to uh, uh, cook a, a leg of lamb, and he was not able to work because the arm needed to heal up, and Stan took over his part. And so Stan, 
once again was before the camera, and then Babe healed up and was before the camera again, and uh, occasionally they would have parts and pictures together. And oddly enough, there's there's one called Duck Soup, which is only the second film in which Laurel and Hardy appear together, and uh, for Hal for Hal Roach, it's the third the third film in which they appear together. And they're a team in that film. Uh, you would think they'd been a team for years. The way that they react to each other, the way they move with each other, the way they anticipate each other's reactions. Uh, you know, they came from, as you mentioned, entirely divergent backgrounds, and yet they have this seamless, perfect rapport. And you know, everybody at the Roach Lot noticed this. You know, that whenever these two got together. Uh, there's a, a British uh, author named Danny Lawrence, by the way, who recently uh, has come out with a book primarily about Duck Soup, just about that one Laurel and Hardy film, and uh, which, by the way, was a lost film until sometime early in the 1980s. Uh, a print was found in Belgium that had uh, uh, Dutch and French intertitles. And uh, happily, more sources have since been found. And I understand that the British Film Institute has recently done a really nice 35 millimeter restoration of that. So maybe one day we'll get that on a Blu-ray too. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Laurel and Hardy continued to do these uh, occasional scenes together in films, not really teamed. And then it was Leo McCary who was the supervising director of all the Roach product. He was the guy who just oversaw everything that the studio was, was releasing. And Leo McCary is the guy who went to Hal Roach and said, why don't we try building a series around these two? And Roach gave him the go-ahead. And it seems like from available documentation, and I have a copy of the press sheet uh, in, in my book, Laurel and Hardy, The Magic Behind the Movies, for the second 100 years where Laurel and Hardy portray convicts. And all the publicity says... New starring team uncorks riotous performance in first picture as comedy duo. So this was the one where they were really billed to exhibitors as being a, the, the new Hal Roach comedy team. So the second 100 years was, as far as the studio was concerned, was the, the beginning of Laurel and Hardy. They were still part of the All-Stars series, and they didn't get classified as the Laurel and Hardy series until several films later with a film called Should Married Men Go Home? And then from that point on, um, you'll notice on the stills, the, the, the code number will go from S for stars to L for Laurel. So <laughs> so at that point, they finally became the, the legitimate Laurel and Hardy series for the Howard Studios. Do you see uh, evolution in how they work together in those those early films where they're sort of trying different things before they settle oh, yeah. into their oh, routine? Absolutely, absolutely. When I... You know, I've I've basically written my book three times. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, especially for this most recent one, I I I try to do my my research carefully. Uh, in fact, when I did the commentaries for this forthcoming DVD and Blu-ray, once again, I looked at every film at least four times, made copious notes, and made notes as to where I should place certain elements of the commentary. So, you know, when there was a long scene where it was just Laurel and Hardy, I thought, okay, here's where I can talk about other elements of the film because we don't have other actors that I have to mention, you know. But if if uh, Mary Carr, for example, was doing her introduction in one good turn, that clearly was the cue to give background information about her and her career in the commentary. So, you know, I I was careful to to place everything where it would be uh, most appropriate in the commentaries. Richard Band did commentaries for Battle of the Century and The Music Box, but I did all the other ones. So anyway, 
Uh, yes, I when I redid my book uh, all through the 2010s, <laughs> I looked at every Laurel and Hardy film in the order in which they were made at least four or five times, made notes, and yes, you do see different things coming in gradually, different uh, elements of their personality, different things which would become uh, trademarks. Um, and it's it's really instructive to watch them that way because Laurel and Hardy are the only team where you can actually see them forming their partnership on film. You know, every other comedy team has been together for years in, for example, vaudeville and then Broadway, like the Marx Brothers, uh, uh, together in vaudeville and Broadway, like the Three Stooges. Uh, um, you know, uh, Martin and Lewis had done nightclubs. Uh, Hope and Crosby had been together on, on uh, radio and had done other things. Uh, so Laurel and Hardy are like the one team where you get to see them, really their introduction to each other is on film uh, with the Lucky Dog. And then their reintroduction to each other is there with uh, uh, 45 Minutes from Hollywood, although they don't even have a scene together in that one, and then Duck Soup. And then you you see them finding themselves as characters um, you know, they'll make uh, uh, Do Detectives Think, where they have their costuming, and, uh, you know, they seem to be Laurel and Hardy again. And then they revert to Flying Elephants, where they're characters who are at odds with each other, and they have very little footage together. So it's, you know, one step forward, two steps back, and then another step forward. And then finally, by the 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 end of 1927 uh by which time now the films were being distributed by MGM not Pathé and now there was a little bit money in the uh, to for them for the production you know by the time of the battle of the century they're fully formed as Laurel and Hardy that by the way is the first film where Stan has his trademark derby with the flat brim and the taller crown which is an Irish children's derby <laughs> <laughs> so appropriate for his character and i should mention that a gorgeous transfer of the Battle of the Century, almost complete. The Battle of the Century is making its debut on home video for the first time anywhere uh, in these forthcoming Blu-rays and DVDs. And it, it, it looks as though it had been carefully preserved ever since 1927. But of course, that is not the case. Uh, it's by sheer good luck and happenstance that uh, John Marsalis uh, uh, who is like the fourth inheritor of the Robert Youngson film collection. Uh, he happened to open up this can marked Battle of the Century. He had assumed that it was just the clip of the pie fight that Robert Youngson had used for his film The Golden Age of Comedy, which is basically all we've ever seen of it for all these years. He he watched it and realized it was the complete second reel. And even then, he didn't know that he was the only guy who had the complete second reel. He 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 was at a uh, a meeting of of a thing called Mostly Lost, which they have in Culpeper, Virginia, for the Library of Congress. And he was talking about having inherited this huge collection of films from a collector named Gordon Burkow, who had passed on. Gordon Burkow had previously inherited all of the stuff from Robert Youngson. And he said, yeah, and, you know, I found all sorts of interesting things. There's a complete second reel of Battle of the Century, and da-da-da. And there was this gasp from the crowd. Everybody going, ah! You know, what? You know, he Tex said, yeah, Avery you know, eyes a... boom out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he didn't know that he was the only guy who had it. So, uh, of course, immediately, uh, uh, happily, uh, events were put into place for that to be preserved properly. And it's a good thing, too, because that now that was in 2015, only five years ago. And since then, that film has gone vinegar. That 16 millimeter has gone become a victim of vinegar syndrome. So, you know, even that we caught in the 
nick, nick of time. Wouldn't that have been a tragedy if you know he'd opened up that can and realized there was a complete second reel, but it was now unusable? Oof. So <laughs> you know we're we're very lucky. You know these these things survive, uh, you know just by uh, you know uh, a hair's breadth. Uh, anyway, maybe it's a little too glib, uh, but uh, my usual phrase about Laurel and Hardy is. We don't just laugh at Laurel and Hardy. We love Laurel and Hardy. And the reason we have such affection for them, the, real, the reason we love Laurel and Hardy is because they love each other so much. And, there, I mean, there really is uh, an emotional tie between those two characters, more so than you have with any other comedy team. Um, my favorite scene in all of Laurel and Hardy is in Blockheads, where there's the reunion at the soldier's home where Laurel and Hardy have been separated for 20 years ever since the end of World War I. And here it is now, 1938, and Ollie is meeting Stan again for the first time. And they, they sit down and they have this chat, which is basically small talk, but really the, the undercurrent, the unspoken word is, I love you and I've missed you for 20 years. And Ollie actually says, and now that I've found you, I've never letting you out of my sight. Yeah. Well, you know, what other comedians would do a scene like that? I mean, uh, you know, Abbott and Costello, Abbott's always trying to find a way to abuse Costello, either financially <laughs> or other ways. And the Three Stooges do have a sort of a, uh, a brotherly camaraderie. They do seem to want to work together, even though Moe is always angry at the other two. But it's like brothers who fight, nine-year-olds pummeling each other. Right, but, but, but when one of them seems to be actually hurt, you know, there's always, hey, kid, kid, you know, say something. You know, there's always, there is, there is a level of concern there, you know. Yeah. But, you know, the Marx Brothers, how do those three characters get together, you know? Yeah, uh, how do from, they exist from, in the same universe? Even? Yeah, I mean, they're from outer space, these guys, you know. So Laurel and Hardy, they're these, these two kindred spirits that are united against a very harsh and nasty world. And even though it's a very difficult friendship, and they are very different people from each other, they recognize that, you know, each is like the, the only other person in the world who's not going to hurt them, you know, uh, uh, emotionally. <laughs> Physically, there's another condition, yeah. it's another story. But but they're like the two against the world because everybody else is this harsh, snapping wife like Mae Bush or a criminal on the run like Walter Long or someone who is trying to fleece them financially like Jimmy Finlayson. You know, all the other people in Laurel and Hardy films are pretty nasty characters. Um, and it's, it's two against the world. And, uh, even though it's a very difficult friendship, you know, Ollie is always trying to fulfill his grandiose plans and Stan in trying to help is always putting all those plans asunder. And, you know, Ollie looks at us in the camera, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the people actually who Ollie, uh, gets along with the best are, is not, not Stan, not any of his on-screen wives. It's us in the yeah. audience. <laughs> he, he looks at us knowing that we will sympathize with him. And it, it's, it's as if he's reaching out to his, us from his black and white 1930s world saying, do you understand what I have to contend with? You know, <laughs> <laughs> It's like we're the third Laurel and Hardy. Really, yes. And, and I think that is a powerful reason for their continuing appeal. You know, the fact that he always acknowledges us and and it, 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 there's a performance on that level to us directly as well as to the other people in the scene. So anyway, Laurel and Hardy have always been popular all over the world. In fact, we have a number of photo galleries 
in the forthcoming Blu-ray and DVD. I I put together a lot of those, and Richard Band supplied the stills that are from the specific films. But we have galleries of other materials as well. Um, for example, I have a lot of Oliver Hardy's personal photographs, which I bought in 1979. And, for example, we have a lot of the uh, photos from their first tour of England, which was meant to be a vacation, but MGM publicized it to all the theater owners, and it became <laughs> it became a personal appearance tour, despite what Laurel and Hardy had wanted. Uh, anyway, Babe had a lot of wonderful photographs from that vacation or tour in his uh, private collection, and so I made high-definition scans, and those are now a photo gallery in the new videos. Um, and we also have many, many posters from all over the world for the films that are in the collection. So for uh, Sons of the Desert and Way Out West, you'll see posters from Poland and Czechoslovakia and Sweden and you know just all over the globe, which gives you an indication of how popular they were uh, everywhere and continue to be. And that's again, that's a happy uh, situation for us in terms of film preservation because uh, there are Laurel and Hardy films in archives around the world, and sometimes those have to be pulled in uh, to be used for preservation purposes. Pardon the intrusion, lady, but my friend and I are victims of the depression. We haven't tasted food for three whole days. Fancy not eating for three whole days. Yes, ma'am. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And they also have the distinction that they not only transferred to sound, arguably they transferred to sound almost better than anybody. I mean, just a few yeah. other stars like Gary Cooper or Joan Crawford seem to make the transition so seamlessly to be exactly right. what you always thought they were going to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about them moving into sound. Well, I imagine that Stan Laurel's English accent probably was a surprise to people. Uh, you know, he they, he didn't make any attempt to cover that. <laughs> Although it's, it's kind of light. You don't really, it's not like he talks like Henry Danielle or something. He just, he has this kind of odd, Child no, well, uh, well, he's he's from a different part of the country, and yeah. you know, as 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 you know, if you've ever seen uh, My Fair Lady, there's a lot of different English accents. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, in fact, Stan, having lived in California primarily since 1922, uh, by that time had acquired a little bit of a more uh, uh, American uh, lilt to his voice. I, I remember reading some newspaper accounts of when the team came came to visit England in 1932. And one reporter said, Stan's voice has acquired a distinctly Californian twang. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was audible to people from his home country in Ulverston. But uh, yeah, they, they, well, one thing about Laurel and Hardy, as opposed to Keaton or Chaplin or Lloyd or Langdon trying to make the transfer to sound is Laurel and Hardy being a team had each of them had someone naturally to talk to. You know, yeah. whereas Keaton could could do a scene and not utter a word and probably was happy not uttering a word. You know, what what are you going to have Buster say if he's working in a solo scene? You know, are you going to to, to uh, give him jokes to say along the way? Uh, you know, how do you get him to talk when he doesn't need to talk? Well, Laurel and Hardy needed to talk because they had each other. And in fact, even if you look at some of the silence, like, for example, Wrong Again, which is the one where they put Blue Boy the horse on the piano because they don't realize that the millionaire wants Blue Boy the painting on the piano. <laughs> There's a scene where they sit on a couch and talk with each other, and it's a silent movie. 
And they're basically having, and no titles, they're basically having a dialogue scene in a silent movie. I've always wanted to get a a lip reader to find out precisely (laughs) what they're saying. But Leo McCary, who directed that one, loved long takes where not a lot happens. And he just lets the camera just grind and grind. And there are Laurel and Hardy talking to each other, having this sort of informal, you know, just waiting for the millionaire to come downstairs. And they talk with each other and and no titles. And you're, you're going... They're doing dialogue even before they had to, you know. Uh, So this is one great advantage they had over other comedians making the transfer to sound, is they had a a necessary reason to talk. And in fact, their first talkie, which is called Unaccustomed As We Are, which is a joke on the old dinner speaker's line, Unaccustomed As I Am to Speaking. Uh, It's a very talkie-talkie. It's a lot of dialogue in that one. And from their next one on, which is Birthmarks, which we have in our new video, uh, there's not not nearly as much dialogue at all. Uh, Laurel and Hardy prided themselves on being primarily visual comedians, and happily, Hal Roach agreed with them that they should continue in that in that mode. They shouldn't. He, he did not force them to start doing jokes and dialogue gags and that sort of thing. And for one thing. Roach knew that they had this large international following, as we were just discussing, and he didn't want to lose that. Uh, you know, he didn't want to lose that market all over the world because, uh, really, it, it, the way that you made money in those days was you broke even domestically and you made the profit internationally. And uh, with Laurel and Hardy, he was making a lot of profit internationally. So that's why a little bit later on, they began making the foreign language pictures. They would shoot the picture in English, and sometimes they would have the picture all cut and finished, and then they'd go back and do the foreign language editions. Sometimes they did them concurrently with the English language version. It, it, It varied from one film to the other. But they made films in Spanish and in French, and then they they made a couple in German, and I think they made one in Italian. And in each case, they had a translator who would write everything out phonetically on a blackboard. And Laurel and Hardy, not speaking those languages, would just look at the blackboard and try to approximate it as best they could. A lot of times they didn't speak it very well, which engendered a lot of laughter from the foreign audiences and made them even more popular. So. <laughs> <laughs> And Hal Roach told me a story about that. He said, he 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 said he said I was in the Argentine. He he said uh, Arthur Lowe and I were looking at uh, the different theaters that MGM owned in uh, South America. And he said this one uh, theater manager in the Argentine said, oh, you've got to come and look at this Laurel and Hardy picture. And I said, well, I've seen the picture. He said, no, 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 no. Come here and listen to the audience. And so he said, so I'm watching this film and Laurel says something. And the audience roared with laughter, and there was no real reason for them to do that. (laughs) And the theater manager explained to me that Laurel had mispronounced a word, and the word that he said meant to pee. (laughs) And he said, well, that wasn't what we meant at all (laughs) in the dialogue, obviously, but Laurel had mispronounced it, and uh, his mispronunciation got a huge uh, laugh from the audience. So those, those things happened. Yeah. But anyway, that was that was uh, once again uh, proof of Laurel and Hardy's international audience. And of course, later on, they went to subtitling or dubbing. Um, in fact, there there were several teams of different guys who dubbed for them in Italy, who became famous in their own right just for providing the voices for Laurel and Hardy in the Italian Prince of Laurel and Hardy pictures. So their career with Roach lasted through the end of the thirties. Um, right. What happened? They they. They went to MGM because 
MGM kind of half owned well, Roach or well, you know, Roach Roach had been distributing through MGM and for reasons which nobody ever really quite understood, uh, uh, he and MGM parted ways uh, after the release of the Laurel and Hardy film Blockheads. That was the last MGM, uh, the last Roach film that MGM distributed. Um, basically, MGM really did not want to be. Uh, a, a distributor of anybody else's product. They did so because when they made the deal in 1927, MGM was not yet producing their own short subjects. They began doing that in-house in 1933 with the Pete Smith Sports Oddities, and later on they began doing the Fitzpatrick Travel Talks, they began doing Crime Does Not Pay, the John Nesbitt Passing Parade, the Robert Benchley Shorts. So as the 30s progressed, not only was the market for short subjects getting smaller and smaller, thanks to the depression and the uprise of second features or B features, uh, B movies, replacing short subjects, but the, the major studios were starting to do their own shorts in-house and not contracting out to independent producers like Hal Roach or Al Christie or Max Sennett. And Christie and Sennett both went under in 1933. Roach was able to hang on sheerly because of the popularity of Laurel and Hardy and Our Gang, and to some degree Charlie Chase. Um, and but but by 1938, um, first of all, it looked like Laurel and Hardy were done. Uh, Blockheads was was thought of at the time as being the last Laurel and Hardy film, because Stan and Roach had had some problems uh, over stories. And um, Stan had married a very tempestuous lady uh, whose real name was Vera Ivanova Shuvalova, but her <laughs> professional name was Ileana. And she was prone to drinking too much and dancing on tabletops at nightclubs and going out driving and running into parked cars and doing all sorts of things that got very bad headlines. And Roach didn't like that. And Stan didn't like that. He realized very quickly in the marriage that he'd made a bad decision. So there were bad uh, situations in Stan's private life. Uh, at one point, he sort of just disappeared to sort of sort things out privately, and Roach said, hey, we need you for retakes on blockheads, and they couldn't find Stan. And so Roach essentially fired Stan in August of 1938. He said, I'm, just, I'm tired of these headaches, and that was right after the time that blockheads had been released. So MGM said, well, all we really want from Hal Roach is Laurel and Hardy, and it looks like they're kaput, and we want our gang, uh, so we'll buy our gang from Hal Roach. And they bought our gang, Lock, Stock, and Barrel, including the rights of the name, and they bought the contracts of the kids, and that's why our gang began making one reelers for MGM in 1938. Um, it's also why they're called the Little Rascals on television. So Laurel and Hardy looked to be over with, and there was a long period of about a year and a half where nothing was happening. And finally, another independent producer named Boris Morris, who had been a musical director at Paramount, he wanted to start being a producer because he said that's where the, the fun is and that's where the money is. And he thought Laurel and Hardy were still very bankable all over the world. And so he said, I'm going to get these guys to all sit down at the table and talk. Hardy was still under contract to Hal Roach, and that's when he made – as they said in the movie Stan and Ollie, the elephant picture, which is called <laughs> Zenobia. And contrary to what that movie said, Stan Laurel had no problem whatsoever with Oliver Hardy making that film. He fully understood 
that you know Babe and Stan were under separate contracts which expired under at, at different times and Babe still had to make a living because he had income tax bills to pay and alimony bills to pay and he fully understood that this was just the situation that you know Babe needed to make a living Hal Roach had him under contract had to put him in a picture thus Zenobia and in fact, Stan even sent Babe a, a congratulatory telegram when Babe was about to go on the Jack Haley Wonder Bread radio show <laughs> and, and promote the film. Jack Haley is the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, sure. and he had a radio show at the time. And Babe, fortunately, we don't have this episode, but Babe did an episode of that show where he promoted Zenobia, and Stan sent him a, an attaboy telegram uh, in care of the Hal Roach Studios also to make sure that the studio knew that he had no ill feelings about this. So anyway, Boris Morris thought Laurel and Hardy were bankable. And so he got Roach and Laurel and Hardy and himself to all sit down at the table and said, let's iron all of this out. And so Boris Morris is really the guy responsible for Laurel and Hardy coming back to work for Hal Roach and making their last two pictures, uh, Chump at Oxford and Saps at Sea. And um, before they made a chump at Oxford, uh, they made flying deuces, even though there's a, a, an oddball thing in the release schedule of them. But they made flying deuces for Boris Morris, which was released through RKO, but wasn't really an RKO picture. And then they made the two pictures for Roach. And then Laurel and Hardy thought, well, you know, we did very well with these internationally, even though war clouds were forming. And they thought they would roll their own as independent producers themselves, just like Boris Morris and Hal Roach. Well, they couldn't get the financing for that. Um, they went out on tour. They did a stage tour. And uh, then because Abbott and Costello had been very, very successful with Buck Privates, a wartime comedy, after all, we had the, the peacetime draft in October of 1940, Fox wanted a, a similar uh, uh, picture because uh, uh, Buck Privates had been made for something like $200,000 and it made $4 million. So Fox said, aha, we want a wartime comedy with a comedy team. Who's available? Ah, Laurel and Hardy are available. So they made a one-picture deal. And it, with the explicit understanding that it was going to be a military comedy, and originally it was going to be called Forward March. And so Laurel and Hardy signed for that, and um, they assumed, I think, I think Stan assumed that he would be able to assist in the writing and in the direction and in the editing of the pictures, as he had always done at Hal Roach Studios. But 20th Century Fox and MGM and the other major studios had a very regimented uh, uh, division of labor. And writers wrote, and directors directed, and editors edited, and everybody was done according to union rules, and people did not cross over that line. And so Stan was essentially a, a contract actor who was given a script written by other hands and told where to stand and where to say his line, and that was that. And it was a very frustrating situation for Laurel and Hardy. I talked to the guy who wrote the first two Fox Laurel and Hardy pictures. His name was Lou Breslow. And he was a very congenial guy, and he was not without talent because um, he directed one of the very best Three Stooges films called uh, Punch Drunks. And later on, he wrote and directed a charming film with Dick Powell called You Never Can Tell. Uh, it's a fantasy comedy. It's a wonderful film. But, you know, he was sort of a, 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 one of these guys who was forced to crank out you know, get a script out every week. And when you're under that sort of deadline, that sort of pressure, you kind of resort to uh, the, the same thing over and over again. The dialogue he was writing for Laurel and Hardy was kind of the same snappy stuff that he was writing for Milton Berle in a picture yeah. called Whispering Ghosts. You know, it did not have the authentic flavor of Laurel and Hardy comedy. And of course, he was laboring under the 
the problem of having to try to write something for these characters that were not brand new characters he was creating. These were pre-existing characters that had existed for 13 years. And, you know, really, if he'd had the luxury of time, he could have gone out and looked at a lot of Laurel and Hardy pictures or consulted with Stan and said, you know, what do you do? What don't you do? Um, But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And there was some leeway allowed for Laurel and Hardy at Fox because I've read all the the scripts for those films. And if you think the films are bad, read the scripts. (laughs) The scripts are really bad and have all sorts of things that are just in direct violation of the established Laurel and Hardy characters. And I saw Stan Laurel's personal copies of these. And uh, uh, whenever there were passages in the script that were particularly egregious, he would take a red pen and mark in the margins these big squiggles as if to show to the director, you know, we are not doing this. (laughs) (laughs) We, We will find something else to do, but we're not doing this. And actually, once they got a director by the name of Malcolm St. Clair, who had made silent comedies with Senate and who had worked with Buster Keaton uh, on The Goat and a couple of his great short subjects, and who made some really good comedy films uh, later on in the 20s, he understood comedy and he understood Laurel and Hardy. Their first film, Jitterbug, they were kind of hampered by the script because that was designed as a showcase for a new Fox blonde named Vivian Blaine. Fox always had all those blondes with Betty Grable and Alice Faye and... Uh, eventually, uh, uh, Vivian Blaine became a Fox redhead, <laughs> but she was being marketed. <laughs> the competition as the latest... was too great, <laughs> right? Exactly. So she was in Jitterbugs was a showcase for her, which is why they put more money behind it. But after that one, the next one was was Dancing Masters, which was clearly a B picture. It's a, a low budget movie. And it doesn't hold together as a storyline, but the individual scenes are pretty good. And it's funny, each of the Fox pictures progressively gets better. Um, I gave the big noise a bum rap in the first edition of uh, Laurel and Hardy Magic Behind the Movies because it hadn't been available for years and years and years. And the last time I'd seen it was 1972, and the script for that one was particularly bad. And so I just kind of fell into lockstep with everybody else who says, oh, yeah, it's the the worst of all the Fox pictures. Well, it really isn't. Um, Big noise is the one or at least the first Fox picture that feels like a comedy when Laurel and Hardy are off screen because they're actually funny, funny supporting players in it for once. Uh, unlike uh, uh, Great Guns, where everybody else in it is just uh, uh, totally bland. As Lou Breslow said to me, he said, well, you know, they changed Laurel and Hardy's makeup. They wouldn't let them use the pancake. They modified the hairstyles. They modified the suits. He says, because they wanted Laurel and Hardy to be in a world of reality. Well, you know, in their Roach pictures, Laurel and Hardy are not in the world of reality. People in real life don't act like Jimmy Finlayson. You know, you right, don't right. see people <laughs> squinting and saying go all the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was clearly a comedy world. Uh, but, but at the same uh, anyway, time, the, it, it had kind of a, I mean, it had its own consistent sitcom reality. It's exaggerated, yeah. but I think a big part of the appeal is that it is sort of domestic life dialed up to 11. You yeah. know, your wife yeah. may not quite be <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, May Bush, but, but you know, you, you get. Well, that, yes, that, that is one thing about, about Laurel and Hardy pictures as opposed to Charlie Chase pictures. Laurel and Hardy pictures always have plausible. Um, beginnings to the stories. You know, it's like I Love Lucy. Uh, I Love Lucy, they said the first act has to make sense so that we can go crazy in the second act. And it's kind of the same way with Laurel and Hardy. You always have a, have to have a story that's rooted in plausibility. And Babe Hardy actually said to uh, his biographer, John McCabe, he said, he said, 
in our comedies, we had to be real to some extent. We might eventually go into flights of fantasy, but, but you know, what, where we started always had to be real. Charlie Chase kind of took the opposite approach. They always say Charlie Chase is the master of the comedy of embarrassment, but that's not really what it is with Charlie Chase. Charlie Chase is like this normal guy who's thrust into fantastic, implausible situations. You know, if you really look at the Charlie Chase, that's really more what's happening because, you know, it's like he he puts on this magic hat that makes him do funny things or he thinks he's only got uh, six weeks to live and it's a big mistake. Uh, you know, there's there's always something really odd going on in the Charlie Chase pictures. So that Laurel and Hardy took a different approach. They wanted their 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 films to seem realistic in some to some degree. So that's why their films are about you know the two reelers in Hogwild, uh, putting up an aerial on on the on the roof, uh, cleaning up the house in Helpmates, delivering a piano and music box. I mean these are all very plausible things that someone somewhere in the world really did. And you know so you don't just dismiss it outright as being oh this is silly. The Fox years, the the early forties uh, and. Uh, uh, things were things seemed to be improving generally at Fox, but over at MGM, uh, oof, that was even worse than Fox. And I actually think that the two pictures they made for for MGM in the '40s are worse than anything they made at Fox, right. uh, which are Air Raid Wardens and Nothing But Trouble. And the thing is, the Fox pictures always had only one writer. It was either Lou Breslow or a guy named Scott Darling. And like I say, once they got director Malcolm St. Clair. Uh, they were able to deviate from the script. In fact, I talked to Richard Lane, uh, who was in hundreds and hundreds of movies, and he was in two of the, the Laurel and Hardy Fox pictures. And he said, the first one I was in was directed by a guy named Alfred Worker, who made good dramatic pictures but didn't know how to make comedy. And he said, that set was like a mausoleum. You know, Stan and Babe were just very sober-faced, and he said they stood where they were supposed to stand, and they said their line, and that was that. He said, then, a couple of years later, I was in The Bullfighters, which was directed by Mel St. Clair, and said, that was a jolly set. He said, he said Laurel and Hardy and Mel St. Clair were huddling together before every take, and he said, Mel St. Clair actually let Stan direct this scene where we're by a water fountain, and he's playing with the, the the nozzle that opens up the water fountain and doesn't realize that he's getting Ollie soaked and then a guy who's sitting next to them. And he said, he let Stan direct that. He, he said the, uh, the the continuity girl, the script girl, was going out of her mind. But Mel <laughs> St. Clair's just said, let him roll, let him roll. You know, we'll we'll fix it in the editing room if there's anything. So they had more leeway as, as time was going on. The problem was Fox wanted to get rid of their B-picture unit, which they had almost done except for Laurel and Hardy because they'd gotten rid of the, the Charlie Chan pictures. Uh, they weren't doing the Lloyd Nolan, uh, Michael Shane movies anymore. Uh, they weren't doing the Jones family. All their B pictures that they'd had in 1941 when Laurel and Hardy came aboard were now gone. And when it came contract time for renewal, they wanted to put Laurel and Hardy in as support for Betty Grable musicals. And Laurel and Hardy said, no, we think we can still carry a feature. Well, you know, that might have been a better, <laughs> a better right. deal for them because – they would have been in Technicolor movies, and uh, uh, being in support, they probably would have had more leeway to do whatever they wanted to do in their scenes because they wouldn't have been carrying the whole picture. You know, Ollie, I, I've been thinking. What about? I, I know how we could make a lot more money. How? Well, if, if we caught our own fish, we wouldn't have to pay for it. Then whoever we sold it to, it would be clear profit. Tell me that again. Well, if, if you caught a fish 
And whoever you sold it to, they wouldn't have to pay for it. Then the profits would go to the fish. But unfortunately, they, they chose to not go with Fox. And then they found that they couldn't get arrested. They didn't do anything at all in 1945 or most of 46. And then in 1947, the offer came from England to do these uh, music hall tours from Bernard Delfont, which they did in 1947 and going into 1948, and then uh, again in 52, and then again in 53 and 54. And that was primarily what they did professionally for the last several years of their career, was just touring theaters mostly in England, but also uh, to some degree in Denmark and uh, France. So that's how their career wound up. You think of like Buster Keaton. I mean, he he also did, you know, live shows. What was the the circus in France that he was in yeah. and things like that. But then he really found his feet again in TV in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Gary yeah. Moore show and things like that. You know, doing the Butcher Boy for the millionth time and and stuff <laughs> like that. Did was there any of that with Laurel and Hardy when they were still together? I know Stan was on TV later. Um, hmm. well, Stan, the only thing I know of is Stan did a, a short, a short film where you see him judging a, a, a children's swimming contest. I imagine you may have seen that. Uh, it was done by a guy named Coy Watson, one of the Watson kids, um, Harry Watson, Bob's Watson. They're all in, in movies in the thirties. And, uh, Coy and Delmar Watson became photographers and Coy Watson produced this series that was supposed to be just, you know, around town in Hollywood. And they made this short film of Stan. I, I guess that was made for television. Okay. Maybe he wasn't and on then, TV. Maybe I'm just thinking of Dick Van Dyke in the comic. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, he was on TV by proxy through Dick Van Dyke imitating right. him. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, Dick Van Dyke's story where he, uh, he had gotten to know Stan by that time, just happened to find his name in the Santa Monica phone book and called him up and Stan knew who he was, of course, and said, come on over and we'll talk. And they became friends. And so when Dick Van Dyke did this episode of the show where he played Stan and Henry Calvin played Ollie, uh, as he'd basically been doing on the Zorro show for Walt Disney for several right. years already, <laughs> and did also in the Disney film of Babes in Toyland, Henry Calvin had quite a quite a career going as Oliver Hardy uh, imitator. Right. Uh, anyway, they did this show, and after it ran, uh, Dick called Stan, and he said, well, what did you think? And Stan said, oh, it was just fine, Dickie. And then Dick says, and then he gave me 40 minutes of... Uh, pointers on what I hadn't done right. <laughs> I just have so, some notes here. For yeah, yeah. But uh, but uh, it, well, wouldn't we love to have that conversation yeah. on on tape? That would be wonderful. Um, in any event, yeah, they they were going to do a series for Hal Roach, uh, Hal Roach Jr. Uh, in television. Uh, they were going to do a series called Laurel and Hardy's Fabulous Fables. And, uh, in fact, I think they had completed a script for one, which was Babes in the Woods. And uh, just before they were about to start filming, Stan had a mild stroke. And uh, that kind of put everything on ice for a while while he recuperated from that. And I guess he wasn't. He still wasn't quite feeling up to par. And then in September of 56, uh, Babe had a very bad stroke. And, uh, you know, that just put an end to any idea about per- of performing. They had, even in uh, uh, June of 56, they'd had some new pictures taken. Uh, so they were still thinking of, of going forward with television work at that point. And by that point, Babe had really been on this, this crash diet. Uh, evidently, he ate nothing but beets uh, <laughs> all, all through 1955 and into 56. And that's how he went from being 
well over 350 pounds. If you see him on the Ralph Edwards This Is Your Life show, that's really him at his heaviest, which is December of 1954. And, you know, it just seems to be an effort for him just to breathe. And uh, then they made a little a little film for a British uh, fraternity called the Water Rats. They were uh, The Water Rats were a, uh, a, a, a an actor's fraternity to which Laurel and Hardy belonged. And they made this special little film for them in Stan's kitchen. And at that point, this is 1955 now, about a year after the, the This Is Your Life show. At that point, Babe looks like he did in about 1935 or 36. He's dieted quite a bit. His voice sounds much better and sounds like Ollie of old. And you kind of wish he had just stayed at that at that level because you're going, good, you know, Babe, you're looking great. He's probably about 280 pounds there as opposed to 375. Uh, but he kept going. He kept dieting down to um, like 180. And there's a home movie and also these two pictures from June and July of 56 where he's he looks like a nice old man. But you, you're going, that's Oliver Hardy? Really? Yes. Um, he, if he, if he uh, resembles Laurel, uh, Hardy of Laurel and Hardy at all, it would be in something like the second hundred years where he hadn't yet – or he had dieted down from being quite heavy in his Florida years. And he, he's quite slender in that one and has the shaved head. Well, he had his hair cut very short, too. And that yeah. with the uh, loss of weight makes him look very different from the Ollie that we remember. Although he in the home movie, um, he seems to be very happy and animated. and He's smiling. And he's doing all sorts of gestures. So he seemed to be feeling better. But unfortunately, that didn't last very long. And he had that stroke in September. And Lucille always said, you know, I shouldn't have made him diet so fast because she thought that that had helped uh, bring on the stroke. But uh, anyway, Stan, Stan soldiered on and, uh, you know, he, he did not want to perform uh, without Babe. He had offers. Um, Stanley Kramer wanted him to be in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And uh, you'll notice Jack Benny's scene in that film. He's wearing a derby hat and he's in sort of a 1930s car. Well, that was what was planned for Stan Laurel. <laughs> and that's why the scene doesn't work for Jack Benny because yeah. Jack Benny should be in his ancient old Maxwell. And when does Jack Benny ever wear a derby? <laughs> right, know? right. Yeah. One of uh, many uh, complaints I have about it's a mad, 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 mad world. Don't get me started on that. It's one of my Mike. least favorite movies ever. Oh, don't tell Mike Schlesinger. You'll never hear the. No, I know. <laughs> Mike. Mike is well aware. All right. Well, let's get back to this release. Besides the beautiful new versions of the movies, what else is going to be on this list? You know, you've mentioned a lot of goodies along the way here. So yeah, what are we going to get? Well, there's there's uh, eight and a half hours of almost nine hours of extras, separate and distinct from the movies. So there's a lot of content there. Um, Number one, there are I did commentaries for uh, most of the films. Richard Band did commentaries for uh, Battle of the Century and The Music Box, but I did all the others. And so there's a lot of background information on the making of the films, in case you're interested in hearing that sort of thing. Uh, along with that, we have photo galleries for each of the films which include not only all of the still uh, from the all the stills from the scenes in the film but also all the deleted scenes the ones that weren't in the that didn't wind up in the picture we have all the portrait shots and uh, uh then we have things like studio documents which are studio call sheets uh, which tell you who was supposed to be where, when at the studio each morning. Uh, we have production reports, which tell you how much footage was shot every day and how much of it was good. We have the press sheets, which have uh, they show the lobby cards and the posters, and you know, you, Mr. Exhibitor, should get out there and sell this picture, and here's how to do it. So we have those. 
Um, and then we have posters and lobby cards from all the films from not only domestically, but in many cases from all around the world. We have a really nice gallery for Way Out West for posters for uh, – uh, I, I contributed the press book for Way Out West, which I have. And uh, so all the articles – uh, you not only get to see each page all by itself, but I, I went in and gave you uh, every one of the articles individually, and you can do a, a pause uh, with your remote, and th- these things pause absolutely beautifully. They don't jitter. They're they're perfectly still, and you can go in there and read every article if you want to from the all the press materials for Laurel and Hardy Pictures. Uh, and then I did uh, way back when, back in 1981, when a lot of my Laurel and Hardy co-worker pals were still with us, I did some interviews with them on good old Super 8 sound film because that's all I had at the, t- at the time. <laughs> so I contributed interviews with uh, Anita Garvin, who was one of the supporting players of Laurel and Hardy, with Joe Rock, who had produced some Stan Laurel solo pictures before the teaming, and with Roy Seawright, who worked at the Hal Roach Studios from 1919 through the late 1940s, longer than anybody else at the studio. And he went from being Hal Roach's office boy to being an animator to being a, a well, he was a prop man also. And then he was an animator, and then he was the guy who did all the special effects at the Hal Roach Studios. And he talks about doing some of the scenes for films like Babes in Toyland and Swiss Miss, some of the special effects scenes. So I have those, and then uh, there are audio interviews, uh, uh, clips from my hours and hours and hours and hours of audio <laughs> interview tape that I have. Um, I didn't give you all the hours and hours because you would have gone crazy, but you get to hear Babe's Widow Lucille. You get to hear Venice Lloyd, who was the uh, widow of Art Lloyd, their cameraman. You get to hear Richard Courier. There's a, a, a name we recognize from Hal Roach movies. He was the head of the film editing department. I knew him for many years. Uh, also, Bert Jordan, who was the key editor for Laurel and Hardy. I got to interview him when he was 92 years old. Uh, he's in there. Walter Wolf King, who was with Laurel and Hardy and Swiss Miss, uh, George Marshall, who directed them in Toad in the Hole and Pack Up Your Troubles uh, and Their First Mistake, which uh, when we have the, uh, Their First Mistake and uh, Toad in the Hole, both in beautiful transfers in the, in the DVDs uh, and Blu-rays. So uh, we have a lot of audio interviews, which have some nice uh, photographs along with it. Um, there are Marvin Hatley music tracks all by themselves from Sons of the Desert and Way Out West and a Chump at Oxford and Saps at Sea. So you get to hear them without, as Marvin used to say, without the pots and pans all over them. <laughs> <laughs> because his music was always being obscured either by dialogue or by noisy sound effects. So he had some uh, uh, transcription discs, glass transcription discs, because these were made when metal was being rationed during World War II. And back in 1980 and 81, um, when he finally brought these things out after telling us about them for years, I said, Marvin, if you will let me, I'm going to get these things properly transferred to 15-inch per second full-track monotape, and we'll get these things cleaned and played with the right stylus, and we'll get them preserved, which I did. And then ultimately, in 1982, I brought out a record album. Marvin and I collaborated on a record album with not only all the original music that he had put together, for that he still had for the Roach Studios, but also some new tracks, because he was still a brilliant musician. And I had a college buddy who had a multi-track tape recorder, so we got Marvin to play piano and trumpet and tuba and celeste and <laughs> a couple of other things and sing songs that he wrote. So we did six new tracks of him as the one-man band, basically. And that came out. I brought that out in 1982. And I, I, I paid myself back the production costs, which were $1,726 for 1,000 LPs. And I gave him all the profit, profit which was 
oh gosh, it was what was it? Close to eight or nine thousand dollars. So anyway, he made some money on that. Uh, so those tracks, the the Roach tracks, the music tracks are there included uh, on the on the new uh, Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, trailers, original trailers are there, which we don't often get to see from the Roach period. There's not that many that are known to survive. Um, there's one for Bohunks, which I hadn't seen before. There's a complete one for the Flying Deuces, which I hadn't seen before. Uh, there's one for Babes in Toyland. And uh, anyway, so there's lots of, lots of trailers. Uh, Tree in the Test Tube, which is their one surviving color film, is here. And that's nothing exclusive, but this is a brand new transfer from a pristine source, and it looks and sounds absolutely gorgeous. Uh, usually when you see it on PD Playhouse DVDs, there's all sorts of spots and speckles, and it looks and sounds terrible. Well, now it's been restored to its original pristine 16-millimeter glory, <laughs> and it uh, looks and sounds great. So anyway, there's acres and acres of wonderful stuff. There's uh, a, a short history of the Hal Roach Studios done in a uh, in a sort of a slideshow. Uh, there are backgrounds on Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy's pre-team careers. Uh, there are scenes from Babe Hardy's uh, private photo collection. Like I say, their their tours in England in 1932 and a trip they took to Catalina Island in 1934. Um, just all sorts of you can see all sorts of things of Laurel and Hardy playing golf with different people. Uh, so <laughs> it's a lot of neat uh, uh, first time exclusive stuff uh, in in the uh, in the uh, galleries and in the extras. Well, I'm looking forward to all of it, but particularly just the vastly improved transfers. I'm really interested to see, you know, how they how they look and feel when yeah. they they've been treated so lovingly as opposed to the back of the hand that they've gotten for most of the last yeah. century. As we come up on their centenary, by the way, next year, the first time that they were together, although not a team for a few more years. Um, right. So let's uh, now we come to the 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 pivotal question. You mentioned it earlier, but Stan and Ollie, what did you think of the movie? Well, <laughs> <laughs> the screenwriter, who was a guy named Jeff Pope, was nice enough to fly out from London to Los Angeles for one day <laughs> to meet with uh, Richard W. Ban and me, which we did at the Culver Hotel. Uh, which is the one Laurel and Hardy location where you can have lunch. <laughs> anyway, he came out to talk with us. And the thing that both of us, Richard Bann and me, tried to impress upon him uh, was don't make Hal Roach a villain. Because, you know, every movie they make about old Hollywood, the producers are always characterized as these cigar-chomping guys who only care about uh, 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 pinching every penny and pinching every starlet who's on the lot as they chase them around their desk. And we said, you know, don't do this because Laurel and Hardy wouldn't exist without Hal Roach. Uh, uh, you know, he made it possible for them to find themselves as comedians and gave them the leeway to do it and didn't impose things on them. He let them find themselves naturally. And, uh, you know, he gave them this creative oasis. He, he allowed Stan Laurel to cross the line and be the de facto director and editor, you know, as well, and, and writer, as well as uh, being an actor. In fact, his contracts with Hal Roach say that he's going to write and direct and edit in, in addition to act. Uh, so Roach appreciated those abilities of Stan Laurel. So, you know, he was a good guy, Hal Roach. Yeah. We should salute him and thank him. And instead, of course, what happens? You know, yeah. Stan and Ollie, 
the first scene is is Laurel and Stan is is angrily talking with Roach that he's not getting enough money, and they're doing it right on the set of Way Out West. You know that was really uh, irritating to me. But the most irritating thing was the argument that they have, where Stan says, "You know, you're a lazy ass, and you're lucky that uh, you found me because I have the talent, and you shouldn't have made the elephant picture." And he throws a roll at Hardy for God's yeah. sakes. <laughs> you know, please. Uh, you know, I read there there are a lot of good things in in Stan and Ollie, particularly the final scenes where Stan says, you know, I love him and I can't go on with another partner. And, you know, he's concerned about Babe, which he genuinely was. He was very concerned about Babe's health during that final tour, particularly. Um, In fact, I used to know the dear departed Tony Hawes, who was married to Stan Laurel's daughter and who earlier had been a comedy writer in England in the 50s. He had a partner named Dennis Gifford, who also became a film historian. And Tony and Dennis, at one point, when Laurel and Hardy were doing that last tour in 1953, they had a script for Laurel and Hardy, a radio script called Laurel and Hardy on the Moon. And they went backstage to talk to Stan about doing it. And Stan said, well, thank you, boys. I'll, I'll read it. And he said, but, you know, he says, I, I don't think we'll be able to do it because it's Babe. And he opened up the door to their dressing room. And Babe was sitting on a chair in the dressing room, and he was asleep, and his face was red, and he was perspiring. And it was clear that he was just not not in good health at all. And so that, in fact, that's why when Stan wrote the sketch Birds of a Feather for that last tour, he wrote it so that Babe was sitting in bed for most of it, so that he didn't have to walk around the stage and exert himself. He could, you know, he could do it with a minimum of physical effort. So, yes, that was genuine in Stan and Ollie. I, I was more impressed with the performances than I was with the script. Um, Steve Coogan never did get the Stan Laurel smile right because he kept his eyes open too much. <laughs> I kept wanting to say, Steve, lower the lids halfway. <laughs> also, the hat that he had was too big. It looked like a bucket. And I said, they need a smaller hat, and his, and his tie is not crooked. His bow tie needs to be crooked. If you ever <laughs> notice, Stan's tie is always a little oh, askew. Well, they, they forgot about that. So, you know, uh, the, yes, Richard Bann and I were consulted so that they could put our names on the credits uh, and I guess give it the uh, whatever, whatever imprimatur we might have. <laughs> but uh, uh, I was not, I, I, was, I was 75% happy with it. That's the, the short answer. Good morning, sweetheart. Don't good morning me. Where were you last night? Stan took me to see a Punch and Judy show. I'm getting sick and tired of this. It's Stan here, Stan there. Stan wants me to go here, Stan wants me to go there. I tell you, it's beginning to get on my nerves. Why, you ought to be ashamed to even be seen on the street with him. When I tell you I understand... Well, why don't you answer the telephone? All right. Hello? That you, Ollie? Yes? Say, listen, I just got a couple of tickets for tonight for the Cement Workers Bazaar. Can you come along? We might win a prize. They're going to give away a steam shovel. Yes, Mr. Jones. Thank you very much, Mr. Jones. I certainly appreciate it. Goodbye, Mr. Jones. Well, who was that? That was Mr. Jones, my new boss. Thanks to my guest, Randy Scretvet. There will be links to the Blu-ray set, his book, and more in the show post at nitrateville.com. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. If you leave us a rating and a review at podcasts, then other people will get a podcast and we get to listen to all the apples. Thanks. Thanks.